invite you to open your Bibles with me. We turn this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 3, and we'll read the first 11 verses, which also will be our text. Acts 3, verses 1 through 11. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And so he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to invite you this morning to come with me to Jerusalem. The year is 33 AD. It's about two months after Jesus has died. So perhaps if we trust the conjecture of the various calendars and when Passover was, most likely June or July, using our calendar of the year 33. In Jerusalem, at that time of years, the temperatures are very comfortable. It would be in the low to the mid-20s in all likelihood. Now, in order to set the context and to understand what's going on as we come to Acts 3, Children, we need to remind ourselves of what has happened. I mentioned this is about two months after Jesus died. You remember from your Sunday school stories what all happened since then. I want you to pretend for a moment with me that we live in Jerusalem. Life has gone back to normal. The Passover feast in which tens of thousands of people came into the city is is done. They're all gone. They're gone home. Life is normal in Jerusalem. But undoubtedly, there is still some talk that's going on among the people of Jerusalem about the very unusual events that happened over the last few months. Oh yes, this Passover wasn't like all the other Passovers you remember. This Passover was a Passover which Jesus, that that teacher out of Nazareth who had caused so much controversy, 
The crowds gathered outside, and the crowds all, perhaps your family was with them, cried, crucify him, crucify him. And indeed, you heard that Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. Oh, it's a grotesque scene. Perhaps your family didn't go to look at it directly, but many people did, and everybody knew it happened. And then you heard the stories that Jesus had risen from the dead. How's that possible? You say Pilate had his guard around the tomb. Oh, the rumor had it that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. And indeed, over the last two months, while there's lots of talk about this, the disciples aren't really anywhere to be found. We know that the people who followed Jesus at the time of his death, they were a pretty small number, really. There were 11 disciples left. Judas had killed himself. Mary, a couple of Jesus' brothers, his natural family. Some other friends. 120 in total, we are told, hid in the upper room for most of those days. Well, actually, let me back up. I missed a step. For the first 40 days, they were hidden all over the place, and then Jesus ascended into heaven. Although most people in society wouldn't have known that. And then for the last 10 days, this group of 120 were together in an upper room. But again, most of society wouldn't have known that. And so we have a a situation where society as a whole really hasn't heard much about Jesus at all until just a week or two ago when the next feast came, the Feast of Pentecost. And children, you remember what happened at the Feast of Pentecost, don't you? The Holy Spirit came down in power, and Peter went out and preached to the crowds that were there, and we're told 3,000 people believed. All of a sudden, this church, which was 120 people in hiding an upper room, was now a church of over 3,000. What did that church do? If you have your Bibles open, let's look together at the end of chapter 2. We have a general description of what was going on in the church at that time. Verse 42, they continued in doctrine, fellowship, breaking in bread and prayers. Oh, you see, all these people who on Pentecost heard the preaching of Peter and said, I believe. They weren't sure exactly what all that meant. And so the church began, they were getting together. What what, what exactly was this all about? Believing that Jesus was someone special, that he perhaps even was the Messiah sent of God is one thing, but what does that mean for our day-to-day lives? And so they were together, gathered. Verse 43, we read that the apostles continued to do signs and wonders. And we need to understand the book of Acts is a transition book in the Bible. When the first people who believed, believed in Jesus, they didn't join a Christian church because there was no Christian church yet. It still had to be established. They became Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And so they went back with a new zeal to all their Jewish traditions. What did they include? Well, we don't have time to get into all of them, but very quickly, most Jewish families would, would go to the temple three times a day to pray, or at least one member of the family often did. At morning, first thing in the morning, three o'clock in the afternoon, and then at evening, they would go three times for daily prayers. Then there were the weekly, the regular sacrifices, daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices. And then there were all these feast days. And undoubtedly, all these new believers were trying to understand what this all meant. And really, they had become very zealous Jews. Their, their historic religion they had believed became filled with new meaning for them. And the disciples continued to do miracles. The sick among them were being healed in the name of Jesus. Verse 44, they shared their earthly possessions. Oh, a new spirit of generosity came. People no longer thought of what they had as mine, but they thought of it as ours, and they looked for the needs in the broader community, and they, they shared willingly, and if there was a need and there was no money for it, they would go and sell some of their stuff to provide for it. Verse 46, continually with one, daily with one accord in the temple. They went every day and they met at a part of the temple, breaking bread from house to house. It wasn't enough just to go to the temple for the official worship. They were so filled with, with zeal and wanting to learn that when they can, they went to each other's houses and had meals together and talked about what this could mean. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Oh, all of a sudden, this group had gone from one, a group that had been suspects and had to hide to now one that was relatively popular in society. They had favor with the people. Why? Well, the sick were being healed. Something exciting was happening. And so it is in this context that on a particular day, Somewhere in June or July, a few months after, somewhere after Pentecost, I don't know whether the scriptures are unclear, it's clear a little bit of time has passed, but whether that time is measured in days or weeks, we have a picture of Peter and John coming to the temple. I want to pay attention to that this morning with you as we consider the beggar at the big gate beautiful, and we'll see an unexpected, unfulfilled coping with routines, we see an unexpected deliverance, and finally we see an unrestrained gratitude. In the contrast to all the excitement that sort of is embedded at the end of chapter two, chapter three starts with an emphasis on routines. Verse 1, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. As I, was, as I mentioned already, this was, this was typical of what all of those Jewish converts would have been doing on a daily basis. They had become very zealous Jews following the religion of Jews because it had new meaning for them. Indeed, they what we have translated in English, went to pray, doesn't mean one time. The verb form is one that they went to pray every day. This was one in a continuous series of actions. 
As I mentioned, we know that Israel generally had three times of prayer in the day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And indeed, what, what we see reflected here is the routines of the, of the New Testament church that's in the form, in the process of being formed. I don't think Peter and John had any reason to believe as they went to, that church, uh, to the temple that day that this day would have been any different than the ones that had preceded it. Oh yes, the ones that had preceded it had been filled with, with drama and excitement and conversions and, and blessings. And that could happen today, but they didn't. We don't have the sense from the text that they went with an expectation knowing anything specific is going to happen. Faith is, their faith is extraordinary, but it's built into routines. And it's remarkable how important routines are in the Scriptures. I already mentioned to you, just describing Israel's worship, how in the Old Testament we can go through and see a whole structure of routines that a faithful Israelite would have had to go through. And indeed, as we work our way through the book of Acts, we will see those Old Testament routines replaced by New Testament routines. The church gathered weekly on the first day of the week for worship. The Sabbath became the Lord's Day. Lord's Supper and baptism were introduced as, as sacraments, understanding the continuity from what passed. The church, in the book of Acts, we have a process by which the church changes from an Old Testament church, Jews who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, to understanding the institution of the New Testament church. Daily, weekly, regular, religious routines. But the text sets up for us a contrast. Because not only are we told in the opening verses about Peter and John's and the Christians' routines, we're told about another man's routines as well. Verse 2, a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered into the temple. Oh yes, Christians, religious people aren't the only ones with routines. Indeed, all of life is defined in many ways by routines. This particular man had been crippled from birth. We learn later that he's over 40 years old. He was carried to the temple whether it was his family or some close friends, he, he had those who carried him to the temple. Now, that ought not to have been the case. If you go back to Deuteronomy 19, you will see the fact that if Israel had been true to all of its rules, it ought to have been providing adequate provision for those who were lame and not able to make an earning for themselves. The very fact that this man is at the temple gate is an indictment of the church for not doing her part in caring for the disabled. Nonetheless, here he is. And we know from the New Testament account that there were many beggars. Oh, we had the account, didn't we, of Jesus at the pool of Bethesda. That's where most of them went. Why? 
Well, children, you remember that every so often the water would stir at the pool of Bethesda and the first one in the water would be healed. God used that in an extraordinary way to have healing. And so most of the, those who were disabled gathered around the pool of Bethesda. That was the place to be. That was, that was sort of the hope of healing that was there if, if the medicine of the day didn't have a solution for your problem. Others who had diseases that really put them on the outsides of society or perhaps were unclean were outside of the city or at the city gates hoping to get empathy from business people traveling to and from. But this man is at the temple gate. Why is he there? We don't know. Speculate. Was he hoping that as people went to worship, they'd have guilty pangs in their conscience and perhaps be a little more generous with the alms that they put in his bucket? Was it more lucrative to be begging at the door of the temple than elsewhere in the city? We don't know why he's there or, or why he's at the temple, but we know why he came to the temple. He came to beg. The text makes very clear. He came to the temple not as an act of religious worship. He came to the temple because he had physical needs. He needed food. The only way he was going to get food was to get alms from those. And the place he was getting alms was at the temple. And so we might say his job was begging and he went to work that day. What did this man think about religion? Again, we don't know. We can only speculate. I'm wondering, presuming he had been going to the temple for some time, if he had been going for the temple for three years or more, he would have seen literally hundreds of thousands of Jews piously going about their religion. And my guess is he knew Deuteronomy 19. And he knew that they were being hypocritical, not following the dictates of their own faith, going about their religion, blind to the duties that were theirs. But he didn't just see the Jews. If he had been there over the last three years, he would have been present at the temple when Jesus came to the temple. Well, it was just a few months ago, it was Palm Sunday. We read in Matthew 21, Jesus went to the temple and he healed the sick. I can imagine this man saying, why not me? How's this fair? The other sick got healed and here I am, day by day, begging for my food. It's not my fault. And just over the last little while since Pentecost, he heard 3,000 people have been saved and now we're followers of Jesus and the apostles were healing people. They're coming every day to, to the temple and there over in that far corner are the Jesus people worshiping and talking to each other and they're healing, but what about me? Well, we don't know what went through the mind of this man. But it's only reasonable and 
the context in which he is, that these are some of the thoughts. And so we can see from both the routines of the Jews and the routines of Peter and John and the routines of this man that on the one hand, routines are necessary. They're a good thing. They're built in creation. We all have them. We all need them. But when we become slaves to our routines, when they don't get filled with greater meaning than just the routines themselves, they become duty. Why did you come to church this morning? Is it your routine to be here at 9.30 every Sunday morning? Well, that's a good thing. It's a good routine that we've been taught to be twice in church. But don't think that routines are enough. It was not this man's routine that saved him. He'd been doing what he's done every other day. Nor was it the routines that counted anything for Peter and John or for the church. But as God often does, He works remarkable deeds in the midst of routines. Even when we go about our task with no special motive or no special purpose, or perhaps even out of duty or wrong motive, God sometimes comes in and blesses. It is said to be, it has been said by many Christian writers over the generations that to be in church under the preaching of the word is to be the workshop of the Holy Spirit. You are more likely to have God's word applied to you sitting in church than anywhere else you can be, even in your personal devotions. This man went about his routines. He went that morning to the temple to beg to receive food. He probably didn't expect anything more. He went in order to cope. But God had greater plans, as we see in our second point. There's an unexpected deliverance. The dramatic narrative of Peter and John's encounter with this man is a a story of expectations raised, let down, and then fulfilled in a way beyond. Notice with me the story as we have it in the Bible. In the end of verse 3 in the description of the routines, we have he asked for alms. Did he know who Peter and John were? Probably not. He asked them for alms like he asked everybody who came. Alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. I live in an inner city in Ottawa. I walk 11 blocks to work. I have nine people every day I pass. Doesn't matter how cold it is, they're out there with their Tim Hortons cup, reaching it out. This man's routine was just like theirs. But in verse four, something happens. Because what usually happens to people who sit at the side of the road and beg, most people just walk by them. Don't even look them in the eye because they feel guilty. But as we come to verse 4, 
we see that Peter and John stopped. Fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. Oh, I can imagine the heart rate of the beggar began beating. Here were people who were stopped, looking, talking directly to him. Here was someone who might give them something. Expectations are raised in that society that probably would have been very considered very rude to talk too directly to anybody. So you sort of said your general alms to the poor, but you couldn't address anyone unless they first addressed you. But now he had been addressed. Peter and John said, look at us. And so he looks. But indeed, the next sentence lets him down, doesn't it? Silver and gold have I none. You can almost feel his emotions go down. He's heard it a thousand times before. Sorry, bud, got no money with me. But what I have, I give you. What did Peter and John have? What do believers have? Well, they had the power of the gospel. They had the Holy Spirit. They had faith in the power of God. I want, you, I want to highlight, because when we look at this, we are tempted to read it as an extraordinary story of apostles in the transition time in which they were still the time of miracles, and we believe that miracles have ceased in the church for the most part. We won't get into James 5 and some of the other passages. For the most part, we believe that God works through the power of the word today. But that's what Peter and John had too. Even though God may not work miracles in the physical sense today in an ordinary course of affairs, he still works miracles through the very same means. Peter and John had nothing more than you and I have as believers. He had the word and the promises and the power of God. What does he say? In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Now this isn't some sort of miracle incantation. This isn't sort of a magical abracadabra, go get alive. That's not what Peter and John are doing. You can turn later to Acts 19 if you're not familiar with the story of sons of Sceva. They tried it. They didn't really believe in God, and they went out in the name of Jesus, saw the apostles healing, and tried to do the same thing, and repeated these as if somehow there was a magic in the saying. No, we are not trying to copy the saying. And yet, even when Jesus was alive, the disciples stood amazed when they came back in Luke 10. When they spoke in the power of the name of Jesus, even the evil spirits listened to them. What's the key in all of this? The key is faith. Now someone says, where's faith in this chapter? Where do you find a story of faith in this chapter? Well, let's keep reading. And he took him by the right hand 
and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. What does Peter do? Peter reaches forth his hand. What does the lame man do? What does the beggar do? He holds on to Peter's hand. And that's the picture of faith, isn't it? Faith is God coming to us in our brokenness, in our inability, in our lameness. And God comes and he reaches the hand and the hand of faith holds on to the hand of God. And he lifts them up. Oh, it seems so meager. Believer, which of us are going to say that our faith is strong? Oh Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Later on in verse 16, Peter will explain, this man had faith in Jesus' name, which made him whole. Yes, faith which comes through Jesus has given this beggar perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Peter names it in the rest of the chapter. You can read that afterwards. Peter, I'm not reading this into the chapter. Peter himself says it was the faith of this man that caused him to be able to walk. The faith that grabbed on to Peter's hand. What a comfort there is in this for so many weak believers. I don't know about you, but I often look at my own faith and say it's so much in my head. I believe all these things. I study all these things. But when it comes to the day-to-day realities, do I really believe God's going to make a difference? Am I like Peter and John or maybe even like this beggar? I come to church in my routines. I expect to go perhaps with some practical help for the day-to-day problems for my lameness, some food to carry me through till tomorrow. But do I really expect great things from God? Do you really expect great things from God? Do we really expect that the power of the gospel can go forth and change our lives and have us live in a way of obedience to him? Do we really believe that the witness of this church here in St. George can go out and make a difference? And that masses of people who today are not going to church may come to see the power of the gospel and believe in Jesus? Well, we put our coins in the collection plate for evangelism and for home missions and for external missions. We pray, but how are we like this man with such little expectations? Faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This beggar had faith, we are told. We never hear a word from this man in the scriptures. We don't hear his faith. We can only see it. Was it just his obedience to Peter's command in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk? Had he perhaps heard Jesus preach earlier? Did he already know something of the gospel of these? We can only speculate. 
But what we do know is that when Peter provided him a clear invitation, he responded with a believing faith. Oh, there are several very practical lessons here for us, isn't it? First of all, God's word is powerful. The spirit works through the word and how this ought to not only focus us on a lame man at the gate in Jerusalem in 33 AD, but at the power of God through the church throughout all ages and in all places. There's a reason we ought to be zealous about missions and evangelism. There's a reason we ought to witness to those who come in day-to-day contact in our lives. There's a reason we ought to worship. And there's a reason we ought to have hope. And why is that? Because of ourselves. No. In the name of Jesus. In the power of his word. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have faith in some set of doctrines. We believe in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who himself is almighty God. The next chapter, Peter and John are going to be arrested for this, for causing an uprising. They're going to stand before the Sanhedrin. And what's Peter going to say? By the name of Jesus, who you crucified, Even by him, this man stands before you whole. We serve a risen Christ. We don't serve the memory of a dead man who died on a cross and was laid in a tomb. We serve a living Christ who even today is alive at the right hand of the Father. Philippians 3, God has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you bowed before King Jesus? Have you responded to the invitation that comes in his name that whosoever will can be saved? How did this man respond? Well, he believed, but his belief was not just a momentary belief. It expressed itself, as we see in our final point, with unrestrained gratitude. He asked for alms, but he received far greater. Verse 8 and 9. Let's get to the verbs in verse 8 and 9. There he was, leaping, standing, walking, entering with them. And the people saw him walking, leaping, praising God. It wasn't a passive faith. This man just didn't sit there and say, oh, I'm so amazed that I'm now healed. No, he went, he clung to Peter and John, it says. He was filled, he was overflowing. Oh, you see, faith is personal and individual, but it is never private. Faith leads us to other believers and to the church. I mentioned earlier in Acts 2 that the context of this passage is that the leaders of the church were healing many. This wasn't the only man. This is the story that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to share with us. There were other people being healed and saved at the same time. Daily we read were being added to the church such as should be saved. And oh, when the gospel has impact on us, it also affects others. 
What do we read in verse 10? The people around watching this, they knew it was he and they were filled with wonder and amazement. The next, later on in the chapter, we're going to see that they're, they're, you see that they're amazed at Peter and John, these uneducated fishermen. What in the world is going on here? And then Peter preaches to them. He tells them they need to do more than observe and marvel. He says, why do you marvel? You saw Jesus among him do miracles, but you didn't listen to him. You killed him. But I know you did it in ignorance. Repent and be converted. You know at the end of this incident, children, do you know how many people believed? We're told 4,000, more than on the day of Pentecost. The church in Jerusalem more than doubled again, simply as a consequence of the gospel being brought, occasioned by the healing of this man. But did everybody believe? No, the gospel is a two-edged sword. And we see that in our passages as well. Chapter 4, verse 1, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, the Sadducees being greatly disturbed that they preach Jesus and the resurrection, put them into custody. The religious leaders of the day and many of the crowds would not have this happen. It was upsetting their way of life. In chapter 4, there's the trial. We don't have time to go through the details that would require another sermon. They see Peter and John as uneducated men, but they can't deny the evidence. What do they say in verse 15? We cannot deny it. They admit that. But in order that it doesn't spread any further, we command you not to speak in the name of Jesus. Be quiet about it. Such is the heart of the natural man, and that's still true today. The gospel is rich. The gospel has 2,000 years of history. We could engage in a debate this morning about the gospel. While I cannot convince you by argument to believe in Jesus, Christian apologetics can answer almost every objection that the human mind makes. And you know what? it doesn't make an iota of difference. If your eyes are blinded, and if you refuse to see the gospel as a result of being in the grips of sin, then no amount of human argument is going to solve it. Well, you say, that's a hopeless message. No, it's not. Because I come to you this morning telling you what can solve it. Not logic. Not argument, but the power of God in the name of Jesus. Peter preaches in verses 12 through 19 a sermon. In verses 12 and 13, he basically says, don't be amazed at this miracle which John and I really didn't do. God did this through Jesus' name. And he comes to verse 14. You denied Jesus when he said who he was, and you killed the prince of life but he's alive. Repent. Believe and be saved. 
even as this man was. I come to you this morning with the same gospel message. Whether you're a stranger to grace and have never believed in Jesus before, even though you've gone through all the routines of life, you've come to the temple like this man, seeking alms and seeking to go home with benefits of some sort, but not the gospel. Or whether you are a believer, perhaps are far from God right now, perhaps you're sick and in trouble and not knowing where to turn. I have great encouragement for you this morning. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As that hand, gospel hand, reaches out to you, will you grab it? Will you hold on to it so that with this man you can walk and leap and praise God? Well, you say, I don't understand everything. Well, Peter and John didn't either. At this point, they're still going to the temple. It's going to take several chapters later and Peter having his vision at the house of Cornelius for him to understand the extent of the gospel and the nature of the New Testament church. Peter's still in the midst of what we might even say are outdated routines and yet God uses them. And in that process teaches the church with an extraordinary demonstration of his power. Oh, don't let the stubbornness of your rational mind rationalize away the gospel. Believe him and be saved. Oh, indeed, with the hymn writer of old, isn't it true, believers, that we can say I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longing as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story for those who know it best. Seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. But when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Let's pray together. Indeed, it was an extraordinary day at the temple. Somewhere in the summer of the year 33 that we read about, Lord God, and yet you have passed it on through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, caused Luke to record it for us. And Lord, have enabled us this morning also to see in it something of the gospel power. And of the comfort that it's not our understanding, it's not even our, our faith, it is just, Lord, a response to, invita- to your gospel invitation in which we reach out and hold to the hands of the gospel. Give us that faith. Indeed, it is a gift of God. So we pray this morning, Lord, will you go pew by pew, person by person, apply the word as they have need. Forgive that which was sinful. Be with us as we continue in this day. Lord, bless even our If we do it out of routine, bless, Lord, our setting aside of the Lord's day and grant that we may focus on you and your works even as you did before the fall. And, Lord, that all glory and honor may go to you. Hear our prayer, forgive our sins. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.